listening mm. to Cooper Talk. Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I got to tell you something, people. Back when I was in college in the mid-80s, my college was Stockton State in New Jersey. And we used to have something called the Spring Challenge, which the dorms played the apartments. And my senior year, I lived in the apartments, A-Court, and we won. And we played one song over and over that night because all through our years in college, it, we always heard it and it meant something to us. And to this day, when I hear American Pie, it takes me back to that young guy with a full head of hair worrying about getting beer. And my guest is a gentleman who wrote that legendary song and sang it. My guest is Don McLean. How are you doing, Don? I'm doing really well. How are you? I got no complaints. So, so uh, the song, you just re-released it. With you, you you start on the on the uh, new album of new song. What is what what made you to bring out the new version? Well, I don't know what made me do it, but I'm really glad I did it. Um, they're a young acapella group, Home Free, and they have quite a following. I guess a million Facebook followers or something like that, and growing. Um, they got that this teen thing happening with their audience. And um, they they asked if they could do the song, and I said, sure, why not? So then they wanted to know if I would participate, and I said, okay. So I went to Nashville in September and did a whole bunch of other things, TV shows, interviews, you know, whatnot. And uh, they went to the studio and sang uh, my stuff and then did a little part in the video. And lo and behold, the original version of American Pie is number one on the iTunes sales chart right now. And the video we did is number one on the iTunes video chart. So that'll be nice for a few days, I guess. Well, yeah, it's great. Well, it's, it's, such, a, it's a, such a song that everybody knows and loves. When you wrote that, did you think that it would... Take, it would make so many people feel special because, as I said, you know, all my friends from college, we still feel that way when we hear it. When you were writing it, what was going through your mind when you sat down and started writing that song? Well, first of all, it's two questions. The first question, I never thought that anything I would do would last this long. I, I, I really only wanted to make a living. Uh, with a guitar and there were a lot of ways to do it, you know, and maybe have a house someday or something like that. Uh, I had very low expectations and uh, my main focus was my writing and my singing and and also to, if I was an opening act or on a concert, to destroy the opening act so that I would get the best review uh, out of the show. I was very aggressive trying to, you know, claw my way up the latter in show business and that was throughout a lot of the 1960s and then you know I started making records and the minute I did uh, with Tapestry the first album uh, I became a headliner in all these nightclubs and concerts and colleges around the country and the album got played all the time on uh, underground radio um, you know FM and they play the whole record stuff like that and the first single off of it was uh got into the top 100 which is totally amazing so uh i was quite thrilled everything was due you know we were uh, singers and songwriters coming after the era of the stones and the big boys you know dylan and simon and garfunkel and all those great 
people that made those great records here, this little group of singer-songwriters started uh, getting the public's attention, and uh, I was amongst them. And uh, so it was exciting because um, I thought it was all over and it was just starting. And uh, Tapestry was very important to me and to, as I said, to FM radio. And then I working on the second record and I wanted to do a big song about America. Now I was, I was with uh, Pete Seeger, who was a protest singer, and um, there was a lot of discussion of America, you know, what it was doing right, what it was doing wrong in the eyes of most of those people. It never did anything right. I did not agree with that, which is why I parted company later on. But uh, in those days, there was a lot to be against, you know, the Vietnam War and civil rights was happening and a whole lot of things. But uh, I started thinking, I want to do this, but I want it to be about what America really is rather than just, you know, the, the mountains and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the valleys and the beautiful oceans and all that, you know. And so I came up with this idea that uh, politics and music influence each other going forward. So the song starts with Buddy Holly, but it goes forward. And if, you know, my it was just a theory, an idea. You know, I never, I never knew that I'd have 50 years to see whether it was right or not. You know, but here we are. You know, 50 years later, and you got this guy Trump who stands for nothing and believes in nothing, and you've got music that doesn't matter, and it's all made by machines anyway. And it's the theory continues to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> Now, I, 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 you know, when you think about it, it was an eight-minute song. When you sat down to start writing it, you know, you had your your message. You're a prolific songwriter. You know, you know where you're going to go. Well, you think you know where you're going to go. How did it end up no, getting I, so I long? Didn't, I didn't know where I was going to go. I never know where I'm going to go. I don't even know what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm doing, and I don't know where I'm going to go. Um, I haven't written a much in the last few years, all of a sudden I got a whole album of songs ready to go for this year. One thing led to another, I started, and I went through this phase, and then what happens when you get a bunch of songs, in the case of the American Pie album, which really is the thing that we're celebrating this year because the album is full of famous songs, um, you get, a, for example, I had about eight or nine songs, and they were all talking back to me and saying, we don't have what we need. There's a big song that's missing from this. You gotta find it, <laughs> and that will be. And you'll feel. Then you'll feel satisfied with this. And when American Pie happened, I, this is it. You know, boy, this pulls everything. This makes everything else look weak that I thought was strong. You know, you're always trying to do that. You know, if you've got something going, you think it's really good. Stand back. You can do better. You know, always, whenever you're writing a song, you can do better. That line is not good enough. So be very critical about what you're doing. There's a lot of backslapping and praising that goes on in the music business, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I really, um, the people that really do uh, the, the good stuff are the ones that are not satisfied. You know, they're very, very rugged and they're very rigid and they're very perfect. They're perfectionists. And I am one of those people. I'm hard to satisfy. 
Now, when you took that song to the record company, what was their take on it being an eight-minute song? Well, you know, let me just tell you this, that I like to say this sometimes in interviews, and I think you would appreciate this. Um, prior to the 1960s, you know, you had basically the studio system uh, that made movies and made um, and made records. So, you know, you didn't have folk music, first of all. It was anything mainstream. The Weavers were the ones that changed all that. In 1948, they managed to have hit records of songs by Woody Guthrie and Hudie Ledbetter and all kinds of people that no one ever heard of. Before that, everybody sang with an orchestra, and you went in and you sang the songs that the that the A and R man thought were right for your for you, and you worked with the people the record company wanted you to work for, and this communal effort turned out a very beautiful product. A lot of times, most of those Capitol and Columbia albums are beautiful, beautiful, and very nice. But then you come to the '60s. And everything is different. Movies are being made independently by people, starting, I suppose they say, with Easy Rider, but I probably was before that. And, and albums were being made by the, the artists, and they were right. I was doing everything. I was arranging the songs, writing the songs, chose the producer, found the studio, argued with everybody. You know, I was, in a, 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 I was pissed off all the time because I was, something wasn't right. I was in charge of everything. And then, and that's the same with all the others, you know, the Beatles, the Stones, Dylan, whoever they were, they're probably always angry at somebody. And then you, you, you create this work and you offer it to the record company. So I didn't care what they thought. You know, this is the second record. And that's the song. And they loved the song. And they didn't care what I thought. They immediately cut it down to two minutes and put it to, made it number one. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then they came back and they said, well, we can't put it out on one side, so we got to do a side one, side two kind of single. They did that, and then people bought the album, and they said, we don't like any of this. We don't like that little song, and we don't like that two-sided single. We want to hear the whole thing like it is on the album. So they play the album cut in the, when they were playing the top 40. And that eight-minute song went to number one. It's number one right now on iTunes on the sales chart number, from 50 years ago. It is amazing. You know, when you think about it, 50 years and the song is still, you know, just great and people love it. Now, how did well, you... The funny, let me just say one more thing. The funny thing is when you say 50 years, that really stops you. But until that number popped up, you would always hear, oh, that's American Pie. And you wouldn't think of it. You didn't know it. You were thinking about how long ago it was. Right. There's a lot more coming down the pike. A lot more tunes coming down the pike soon that are 50 years anniversaries because a lot of good songs and a lot of very good artists were operating in those times. There's a lot of competition. But the way I like to say it to people, because it's the way the media has changed the way we think, what about a song that was famous in 1910 and it's now number one in 1960. Right. That really, I think, makes it even more crazy. Yeah. And, and it says more about why people think they can just reach back and sort of touch Elvis Presley in 1956. You can't. He's gone. You know, 
Yeah, what what made you go down this road of being a musician? I know when you were young, you had asthma. So how did you overcome that and become a song a singer who has sung for years? Well, I got to tell you, I wasn't nice to my body. I smoked, you know, when I was young. I smoked in high school. I smoked. I smoked other things afterwards. I was, you know, I was pretty ripped a lot and smoking stuff. And um, it, so I wasn't good to my lungs. Um, but then I quit everything about 40 years ago and just said, I'm not putting any smoke in my lungs anymore. And, you know, one of the things that happened to me was that I, if you don't mind me just going down this road a little bit, uh, I met a, a wonderful folk artist named Eric Darling, who was a friend of mine and taught me a lot about guitars and banjos and, uh, and just about the art of being a musician. And he suggested that I go to a singing teacher that he knew. And this guy was very interesting. And he, I stopped smoking, and this was in the 60s, and started doing these exercises and began cleaning out my vocal cords and throat of stuff that was in there. And you'd be surprised what stuff can get in there. And all of a sudden, my voice became very clear, almost like a bell. And I, I, I held on to that. And there were times, you know, when I would relapse and drink too much or start smoking something. But then I quit again. I always was quitting because I wanted that sound. The voice and the sound kept me from going too far in the wrong direction, which is kind of interesting. And then the vocal production, the you know, using your, your lungs and um, using them properly, your diaphragm. I sing almost like any any pop singer from the from the 40s or 50s would be ra really an opera singer in terms of his his way he used his voice it's very italian sinatra same thing um vocal production and so i'm in that category and so that further and i felt so good you know when my lungs were feeling great i was singing great and feeling great, you know, and uh, I hadn't been feeling so good as a young person growing up, and I liked the feeling, so I, I kept going down the good road. Now, and that's, I'm glad you did. Now, when, when you were starting out, what was the scene like when you were first trying to, you know, get work? You know, it was, was it hard? I mean, you know, what was it like? Oh, as yeah. You... It was brutal. Um, first of all, those nightclubs that everybody gets so uh, touchy-feely and, uh, they, you know, have all these warm and fuzzy feelings about, they were run like, um, you know, like a prison camp. You know, you have a guy uh, who ran the nightclub and he, you know, gets your ass on stage and blah, blah, blah. Well, you weren't too good on that one, you know, whatever you hear about it. And, you know, they were always busting everybody's ass, you know, about this or that. And uh, it was a, a rough scene, you know, and you could easily, if you didn't do well, you wouldn't get hired again, you know, and you were, and there were a lot of us around, you know, trying to play these little joints. And um, so, uh, anyway, just 
back up a little bit and tell you how things worked. The way things worked uh, were that you, you you came to New York in, somehow. This is the way it worked on the East Coast, and you um, tried to get a manager or something like that, and the manager would get you maybe an agent, and then the agent would start to. To, to get you a job and you know you start at the bottom as a second act or whatever a third act on a three act bill and you would learn to perform and they didn't give a rat's ass about the first act or the second act they wanted the main act you know and I was a on the undercard for a lot of years and I learned how to steal a show see that's the thing and that makes you ready for when you're going to be the star and so I had a lot of time, you know, doing that. And when you're about ready to steal a show, then the manager can feel that you're ready for a recording contract of some sort. Now, that is a whole different thing. He will bring people down to see you. This is the way it used to work. And he'll bring people from, you know, Columbia and Epic and Warner Brothers and all these great labels, and you'll get all excited because so-and-so is going to be there from, uh, you know, RCA or whatever. And you're always thinking about how wonderful it would be to be on RCA and, or whatever the label was. And then, of course, you don't get, the, you don't get it, and it's, you're disappointed. So there's a lot of rejection. And then, after all that rejection, eventually, um, maybe you get a recording deal, maybe to make a, a record, you know, maybe a, an album. Um, well, if it fails, and it's most likely going to, um, then you've got a, a shitty album that you made, and the, the business knows that you did that, and so the likelihood of somebody assigning you again is now diminished. So it quickly uh, comes to the end game and you're out of the business. So it is extremely important that if and when you're able to get a recording contract, that you're lucky enough to have the recordings that you make cause some sort of a reaction rather than just laying there and people not giving a shit about it. In my case, the first album was the most important tapestry because everybody was playing it on FM radio and I had all these songs and these new ideas that nobody ever had before. And although my voice was high and, uh, you know, I was a little uh, sort of a jarring when you first heard me, um, there was, a, a, there was a, a brain behind that record and the songs and it, it opened doors. I got a lot of respect right off the bat and started headlining see this is the build that goes on it's work and then the second album of course really shot the whole plan to hell because I became number one and was famous all over the world and I lost my underground following because they thought I'd sold out and then I was in a position where I was thought of as a hit act which I wasn't so you know but it, uh, new things uh, uh, continued and the career began to take on a shape and so then the years would go by more 
wonderful concerts sold out, getting better on stage, making more albums, coming out with more songs that people are still playing. Best ofs come out, they go in the top 10, in my case, number one all over the world. A lot of best ofs that I put out, more, and I think builds and builds, and so that's a career, you know. But that's how it starts. I and mean, if, you, if you don't thread the needle the first time out, you're pretty much screwed. Now, you said earlier about, you know, you have to strive for more. As a performer, we're, even to this day, are you still learning every time you're on stage? Or are you still growing when you're on stage? I am. Um, you know, I have, a, I have standards, and I sing the song. I believe in singing the songs as if I had never sung them before. Every single time, and I don't care where the venue is, I don't care whether it's a big important show or a small unimportant show, it's all the same to me. I have my standards and I have my my art and that is what I do and I'm not I'm not adjusting it and making it better or worse depending on, you know, whether or not the show is important or not important. Because you can't really know. Sometimes you have a a small show and um, somebody very important might be there to see you. You know, and you have a big show and uh, it's a, it's kind of a dull affair. So you have to, you have to really always read the audience. I can very quickly, because I, I, I've done this so long, I can get out on stage and immediately tell what I'm up against. And I can do three things at once. Uh, with, uh, it's one of the things I, I guess I developed in, unintentionally, but I can be completely immersed in the song I'm singing. And I can also be thinking about the song I'm gonna do next. And I can also be thinking about what I'm gonna say to set up that song. And where I'm gonna be headed several songs later. All the while I'm singing the song. It's a, it's a weird, so that way I can control the homogeneity of the show without using some kind of a set list. I, I believe in mastering the idiom, you know, to go anywhere I want to go, anytime I want to go there and have people with me who are extremely good. And I can always resort to just playing my guitar. You know, if I decide to go on a, you know, a, uh, uh, some kind of a jag where I'm singing three or four songs that the band doesn't know. I just sit down and sing them. I made a, you know, I was a, uh, I was a major attraction in, in concert halls around the world for ten years, just a guitar and banjo. So I don't have any problem with that at all. What's the difference in feeling? You know, you said you know you were a major draw with the just the guitar and banjo. For you as a performer, a consummate performer, which, which is. Do you enjoy more? Just you stripped down or you with the whole band? See, I've got to work out so I do it all. So I I love working with my musicians. I know lots of, they're all from Nashville. I know these guys for 30 years. And they're all brilliant. And there's so many, and they're really suffering now right away in Nashville. They're, no one's working. No one is paying into the union and they're all screaming about paying out. And my guys are older, there are pensions they've taken, and they're trying to attack those. This is a serious situation in Nashville. If this is Music City, and there's no music, it's not no place to play, no, none of these studios are doing anything. 
um, it's serious and it's terrible. And I was there in September and I did a thing for a thing called uh, 615. It's some kind of a little concert I did with uh, four or five of my guys. And, uh, you know, I could see that they're worried and they're, they're, they're not happy. And uh, I had nothing I can do. You know, it's one of those things. But, um, no, I, I like having the camaraderie and the energy of really talented people that are devoted to working with me. And it makes it easier for me, you know, to do what I have to do. Now, I know you're uh, involved with uh, the National Indep- uh, Independent Venue Association. Tell me a little about that and how you got involved with that. That was the idea of Home Free and their management, and I thought it was a great one. I, would, I did not think of that. And I said, that's great. I love that idea because one more year of this, and there's going to be a whole lot less places to play in this country, and it's going to take a long time to come back because... Who wants to invest in a, uh, a uh, an enterprise where you can't know if another pandemic is going to come down and, and wipe out the audience again? You know, that's not going to be a great thing for people to put money into. And I know because I've played hundreds and hundreds of these theaters around the country in 50 years, and many, many times you have a, you know, a woman's group or a family or some organization or, and usually it's, it's, it's a group of people that are very proud of renovating that theater and keeping it going and it's their baby and they bring uh, all sorts of performers uh, we have a place called The Strand in Rockland, Maine and that used to be a movie theater and the guy came in and renovated it and uh, they have everybody that you can think of comes to Rockland, Maine to play in that theater. And now I have, I'm sure it hasn't had a show in more than a year. I mean, how can they, what are they going to do? I don't know. Now, I know you have the Don McLean, Fanda- Don McLean Foundation. Tell me about that, because that's in Maine, right? Yeah, that's something, that's a, that's a federally um, sanctioned foundation. And I put money into it, and I... You know, I, I do things like support the, the Portland um, uh, Salvation Army and buy things because of these poor homeless people in the bitter winter of Maine. You know, I like the idea of them having sleeping bags and, and gloves and clothes. The idea of being poor and, you know, cold and off the awful, you know. And so if I, I try, I'm, I'm going to work, I work with them and I have, I do other things with soup kitchens and, homeless shelters uh, in that state but when I die everything I have really is going to go into it and it'll be national you know we'll give money every year and have my home in Maine will be used as some sort of a a place where um, events will occur and, and things like that tell me about the song The Legend of Andrew McGrew because that's a that that's, that's it seems it's so interesting. I was reading about that. Tell tell my listeners about that song and 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 what it led to. Well, uh, it was about 1974, I guess, and I was working on a album with one of my favorite people, who unfortunately has passed away, Joel Dorn. And Joel Dorn 
made probably 200 um, fabulous uh, jazz albums, and he was like a jazzer himself. He was he was uh, funny as hell, and he was incredibly sensitive and creative. He's a very strong man, and I loved him. And he was just kill me the you know, things you would say, you know, and and I would say things to him that would drive him nuts too, you know, that he'd like a lot. And uh, like I said once to him, uh, he wrote, we did the last album we did together was called Rearview Mirror, and it, I did had a lot of un, unreleased material, and we we put out all this. And, really did a beautiful job with that record. And I said, you know, my father, you know, my father was um, a, a district manager and he was 40 something when I was born, but when he died when he was 56, he looked like he was about 80. You know, he had wispy white hair and sallow complexion and heart condition and, you know, and his life went by in a second, you know, and so I said, my father was terrified that I was on the road, because I wanted to be a musician, that I was on the road to the circus. You know, that's about what it amounted to, you know, <laughs> to my father. I was going to be in the circus or something. And he wanted me to go to West Point, you know, and, uh, you know, have a, a distinguished business career, you know. And uh, so he went nuts. He said, the road to the circus, oh, my God. You know, and he's like, <laughs> You, you were a whole thing about that, you know, because that's, you know, where I came from, um, you know, the music business was for, you know, high school kids, guys that dropped out of high school, maybe, you know, um, blue collar people, you know, it wasn't for what I was raised to be, which was a white collar person, upper middle class person, you know, and, um, but I didn't want any of that, really, after my dad died. Um, you know, I just... Anyway, so I was working on this album with Joel, and it was a very unusual time in my life, and I wrote this song called Homeless Brother, um, and I had the cover of the album done by a Spanish artist who was married to my first wife's sister. He was my brother-in-law at the time. His name was Marcote from Spain. I loved his painting. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about this for a second. I gave him a picture of a woodcutter that Doris Ullman had taken in the 1920s. And I said that I wanted to have him inside of a box car. And my dog is there too, a little black and white dog. And would he paint me a picture for this cover? And he created the cover of Homeless Brother. Um, that way and everything we did and then there's a beautiful pair of boots inside that he, he did also gorgeous that's him uh, anyway uh, I wrote Homeless Brother about hobos you know and that's what the idea of the of the record was and um, I read the newspaper about this little article that said hobo buried in Dallas so I thought well that's interesting it sort of fits in with what I'm I'm thinking about right now uh, Jack Kerouac was the guy that inspired the idea for Homeless Brother from a, a book I'd read from his poetry. But I read this article and it said, Mummy buried in Dallas. And then I'm digging, I said, holy mackerel. You know, uh, they find this, this lady, her name was, 
golly, I can't remember it right off of that, but she was a nurse. And she went into a basement somewhere where they had artifacts uh, from an old medicine show in the basement of, of somewhere. I don't know where it was, where maybe where there was a, a public building or someone's house, whatever. And she saw this mummy. She said, that's a person. Don't you realize that? That's a human being. And she was appalled. He was in a tuxedo and, it, you know, you know, this looked like something had been in a fire, all blackened. The man was black anyway, but it was turned blacker than that, even this decayed and became this mummy. And she said, we have to bury this person. And she did, she had a burial and all, there was a lot of black newspapers in Dallas, Texas, and they were all about this story about Andrew McCrew and he got buried because LG, LG Pace was her name, LG Pace, P-A-C-E. She, she got him buried. I wrote the song about him and that WGN in Chicago played the song like day and night and raised money to buy a headstone for Andrew McCrew. And so they got one, and on the headstone was a, with the lyrics of my song. And they reburied him in uh, Lincoln Cemetery, which was the most prestigious cemetery in Dallas, Texas. And so I, I had a friend from the Deep South who was a very, was named Lee Hayes, and Lee Hayes was a very famous, was in the group The Weavers, and he was the bass singer of the group, and he was a brilliant man, and I would go visit him once in a while, and I told him a story about this mummy and the song and all the stuff that had been happening, and it caused all this to happen. And he paused for a moment, and he said, I saw that mummy. This is the kind of thing in the deep south, Arkansas, you know, Mississippi, this is one of the indignities they would do to black people. This mummy fell off the train, lost a leg, and lay there. Nobody cared about it. Somebody came along, oh, we'll mummify him, and I'll take him around as an oddity. And this is the kind of thing that's still in the 1930s. It sent a shiver up my spine, I'll tell you that. Because I've been lately quite interested in slavery, and, and the, I just want to cry every time I see these, listen to a lot of these slaves who talked in the 1930s. And the idea, I'll put myself in their shoes. Imagine being a piece of property that you were sold, your child was sold, you were, I'm learning more like the women were, were made to breed. They wanted more of them, so they breed them. Oh my God, I mean, it's just, you know, the more you get into it, the more you, it's so crazy. And the idea of, of them raising the white children and then the master, you know, having sex with them and making more children and sending those kids down the road too, you know. It is, you know, it is crazy well, how history is. I mean, you know, when we, we, we don't notice it, I mean, even now, I mean, there are, are problems, but you think about it and you're like, wow, I mean, you, you, you put it perfectly, what would it be like to be a piece of property? I mean, I know people who bitch because they don't like their job. Well, you know what? You're not a oh piece of property. God. But you know, it's going on all over the world right now. In, in, in all sorts of weird-ass countries, 
There's still slavery. It's still going on. Slavery has been going on all over the world for, in one time or another for centuries. Um, people enslaving other people. What is one question that nobody ever asks you and you wish they would? <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, I don't really care who asked me what. Uh, I don't think that way. I don't think, oh, gee, I wish they'd asked me this. Um, I answer whatever questions they ask me, and I take note of whether or not they were intelligent or stupid questions, and I answer them respectfully regardless, and that's about it. Okay. Um, the song Vincent. Where did that come from? I know it's inspired a lot of people. Uh, where, did, where did that song come from? Because it's such a great tune. Have you ever read about it? I read about it, but I want you to explain to people because not everybody knows. No, I want you to tell me what you read about the song. Okay, I read that you were reading a book on Van Gogh and you yeah. saw the picture, Starry Nights, uh-huh. and it inspired you. That's right. So that's what I would have told you. You know that already. So how I did that has to do with how my mind works and what I was feeling that day and I thought it was a good idea to write a song about a um, an artist and there you go that's how it happened you just told me okay well there we go we're off to a good start I'm reading your mind today that's a wonderful thing um the music, you're, when you got nominated, or well, you got inducted to the Songwriters Hall of Fame, how much of a great honor is that to be recognized by your peers and to show that you've been just a force in the music industry for a long time? Well, it's very nice, and um, all that stuff, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, everything, Grammy Hall of Fame. Um, and if you do things that are important to people, you know, when you go along and you get to be an old person like me, you get, you get things like this happening. Um, kind of like the, uh, sort of like a, a, a gold watch, something like that. Um, I don't know how much, you know, it really matters. Because um, there are certainly a lot of singers and songwriters that I knew along the way that weren't known all that well and um, didn't have this type of thing. But, you know, I'm, I'm very thankful that, um, that things have happened the way they have. But I never lobbied for anything. You know, I didn't have the record company and uh, all these people go and say, you know, make Don a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or make Don a member of this or that or the other. Um, I never had that. It just happens spontaneously. So I like that the best. You know, when something happens, when you're not trying for it, and people feel you know you really deserve it. Now, you mentioned yesterday you have a whole new album's worth of material. What is the sound? What's it going to sound like? And have you grown in your writing style as you've gotten older? I think I've probably gotten worse, you know, because my mind isn't as sharp as it was when I was young. Um, I'm not as enthusiastic. I'm not as focused. 
but I'm still very good. And, you know, it's like Catfish Hunter says, um, um, even if I don't have stuff, I can still pitch. Okay? So my pitching is better than most of the guys now who have stuff. So it's still worth making a record. Now, do you, do you miss touring? Because it's been such a big part of your life, and you've played all over the world. You've headlined gigs everywhere. You've played in front of, I mean, millions over your career. Is it affecting you mentally that you haven't been able to go out on the road during this whole coronavirus? No, I'm really happy to be home. Um, but the world, world is my home. No matter where I am, I'm at home. Um, to not be singing and performing doesn't bother me at all. Because the time will come when I'll get going again, and then I'll I'll miss the old pen, pandemic days when I could sleep as late as I wanted to or work on this or that and not worry about something immediately requiring my attention. So I'm enjoying the time right now, and I'm ready for when that time will change. Now, do you have any hobbies? You've done so much. I mean, I always wonder, people who've toured the world and done so much, I wonder if they have hobbies. I know you've raised horses before. Are you still doing that? Well, I still keep horses, but I don't raise horses. I know how to... I know a lot about Western riding and about the West and history and Western movies and all sorts of things. Um... You know, silver and guns and hunting knives and spurs and I'm way into all that stuff. So um, now and then when I'm out here in California, I think, gee, I'd like to have a nice six-year-old horse that I could fool with. You know, I think I might actually do that at some point. And that would require a, uh, a whole uh, quest, you know, to go find him and and have a place to put them and, and go there every day. And I'd be better physically if I did that. Uh, and I'm, I'm probably, I'm probably going to do that, actually. That's, that's in my mind. Um, but in Maine, I have a huge property there that's being caretaken and the horses are looked after. And it wouldn't be the same without them on the property. You have to have horses there. So I love that animal. I really do. I really, it's a wonderful animal. You, when you ride a horse and you, you're in the forest with other people or by yourself, you're, you're like on the back of a prehistoric animal and you're flying through the forest and um, jumping over logs and, and you're like the wind. You're really part of it. It's not the same as walking a dog or petting a cat you know, or feeding a goldfish. It's, it's a physical thing. Your body and his body are one and... Um, intimately aware of and extremely heightened by the experience of having him under you. So I highly recommend it um, for people of any age. And, uh, you know, you will get thrown and you will get bitten and you will get, you will get kicked. But uh, it's worth it. You're a guy from New Rochelle. What... What got you into horses? I mean, because you don't think a horse is a New Rochelle. Well, for a guy from New Rochelle, what got me into folk folk music and rock and roll and singing and playing guitar? You know, I uh, that's what the story of that's what Castles in the Air is about. 
you know, leaving all that behind and uh, deciding that I was going to have um, a life that was completely unique, that I was going to do whatever I wanted to do. My life is a result of me doing exactly what I want to do. I have never had a boss. I have never had anybody tell me what I should do in the future. I have figured out what I wanted to do. I have set goals for myself. I have achieved those goals. So one day, uh, I'm a big uh, Western movie fan. I mean, old Westerns. Ken Maynard is my favorite. And um, he does uh, trick riding. And he's a maniac, Ken Maynard. He was all kinds of problems with the studios and he flew planes, he wrote his own scripts. The guy was incredible. And uh, so one day I said to myself, this is back in the 70s, I want to know how you ride a horse. <laughs> you know, I've seen people do it and I just can't figure out how they do it. So I got a horse and it was a little Appaloosa, actually a little Appaloosa um, barrel horse owned by a little girl from Stormville, New York. And it was a fast horse. <laughs> and I, he, he taught me everything I needed to know about him. And I had him for probably 10 years. And I remember one time we were riding very fast through the woods. And I fell off for some reason. And I expected him, this was after I'd had him for six years maybe, I expected him to turn around and run home, you know, and I'd be walking. Instead, he walked over to me and gave me a push and said, you know, get back on, you know. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Now, so did you consider yourself somewhat of, of a cowboy? Well, no, because a cowboy is a seriously hard job, like being a lobsterman or a logger. Um, it's the kind of things that, you know, like Pete Seeger was a Harvard man, and he would sing about logging and cowboying. He didn't know a damn thing about any of that stuff. So that's that's the thing about about the folk uh, category. It was a, basically a fake category. Uh, the only thing I wanted to hear, I wanted to hear a guy singing about picking cotton. Who's pick cotton? You know, and I wanted to hear a cowboy who was a cowboy sing about, you know, the Chisholm Trail. So no, you know, I'm what I am is I'm I'm uh, interested and sympathetic with many things, and uh, certainly with the West. And but you know, it's more in how to handle a horse, how to use a horse, how to how to live in the. I could very well live on my own in the woods. With a gun and some, and a tra, a tra, you know, a pack horse and some stuff. I know how to do all that stuff, so I could be quite comfortable that way. Of the places you performed at, what country have you loved performing the best in? Oh, I like lots of countries. I like countries that speak English. Um. But I also like Holland. I like Scandinavian countries. I like... Um, I wish I, I, I were more famous in, in Italy and France and Spain 
because I'd love to spend more time in those countries and learn learn a little bit about their food and their language, and I will before I die, because I'm already doing that. But Australia, you know, is lovely, and England is lovely, and Ireland and Scotland have been my home. And America, of course, um, I've loved. Uh, so, yeah, countries that speak Eng English, uh, but the ones that have loved me the most have been ones where they've appreciated the sound of my voice, um, the sort of the high, high tenor sound that I have. You do have a great voice. And, you know, how did you end up playing uh, recording Crying? That's interesting. Um, I went to Nashville because Larry, I was on United Artists Records uh, for a while, and Larry Butler was a great producer in Nashville, and he produced all these Kenny Rogers hits on, on United Artists. And he said, could Don come down and, and, and do some sessions? And I was kind of reluctant because everybody I ever heard go to Nashville ended up having a, a kind of a Nashville sound, and I didn't really want that. So I went down and I did the album Chain Lightning, but I just went in there and I said, look, boys, um, you know, I've got some, you know, my own songs and some other songs that I want to do. And my own songs are not country and they're, they're a little different. Well, they were so happy <laughs> to have something different to sing, you know, <laughs> they loved me. So we did Chain Lightning, which is about a seven minute song. We did a lot of other of my songs, and then we did a lot of loving, which is Gene Vincent's song. It killed that. If you can ever hear my version of a lot of loving and the Chain Lightning album, that's one of my favorite songs, uh, favorite recordings I ever made. And that has Tommy Alsop and Bob Moore on bass, and Pig Robbins and um, Ray Edenton, the Jordanaires. Man, that rocks. And then I said, well, I like to do crying. And I had a different way that I wanted to do it, a more solemn way, because Roy's version was, you know, I was all right for a while. I could smile for a while. And I didn't want that. I wanted, I was all right for a while. Song was near the end. The tension was outrageous. <laughs> and it worked out. Uh, and they made a gorgeous record. And it became number one, like all over the world. You've performed with a lot of people through the times you've shared the stage with people. Who are some of your favorite people? And is there anyone that you wish you could have ever you could have performed with, but you never got a chance to? Well. Performing with somebody is one thing. Making a record is something else. I'd rather, I, there's people I'd like to make records with. I'd make a record with a lot of people. Willie Nelson, Bob Dylan, Paul McCartney, Mick Jagger. I mean, there's a lot of people I'd like to make records with. Um, I did do a tune with YouTube. I made a 
Sunday nice job on that. I had an idea for that one. She liked it. And there are others, you know, that are around. But they're dwindling, you know. They're getting older. And the guys that I would want to have anything to do with. Uh, and not that I don't like what's around, but I don't understand a lot of the music that younger people are into. And I don't pretend to understand it. It's not for me. I'm not young anymore. I had my day. You know, I had the things that influenced me, the things that I liked. I had my, my biases, and um, they're gone, people's uh, music. Well, that's great. Now, we're having some technical difficulties, so uh, I, I got to talk to you. I got to ask you a few questions. I want to thank you for taking the time a second day with me because you are a, uh, you're a, you're a legend. And uh, I, I appreciate it because, I, as I said yesterday, American Pie always reminds me of college. And it was just, it's one of those songs that sticks with me. And every people I talk, when I hear I interviewed you, they're going to be like, oh, my God. And it reminds me of college. So thank you so much, sir. Well, you know, this pandemic and making everybody be inside, it's affecting people psychologically, young people especially. And at least we have music to cling to and to, and to hold until things get better and that will help us hold on to our mental health so I encourage people and hope and I don't have to encourage them they're going to do it anyway uh, you know find find the artists that you like and listen to the music and download it and, and it'll, it'll get us through this thank you Don and you have a great uh, I can't wait to see you back live I know you're playing in Ocean City New Jersey this uh, summer you're supposed to and I'm, I'm, I'm an hour from there so I'm going to come see you and I'm going to say I want to go meet Don backstage well, I know how you look, so I'll recognize you. <laughs> All right, man. You have a great day, okay? All right. Thank you. Thank you. People, let's give it up for Don McLean. Uh, people, check me out at Cooper Talk, uh, www.coopertalk.net. You can find over 830 episodes. Email me at cooper at coopertalk.net. And remember, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, take your vegetables, eat your vitamins, and I'll talk to you guys next time.